just go how it is? Or? Yeah. Okay. From the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. Thanks for joining us on this lovely Sunday. I'm your host, Emily, and always I'm joined by my rock star of a co-host, Christian. Hey, everybody. The Progressive Era was a time of political activism and social change that occurred all over the United States. Workers rose up and demanded higher wages and humane working conditions from the corporations and factories they worked for. Industrialization and urbanization contributed to an extremely unhealthy and corrupt environment that abused its workers. Strikes and picketing became common in the workplace and the government was eventually forced to step in and pass laws to regulate business and fix many of these issues. Women's rights and education reform were also at the forefront of the progressive agenda. To help us navigate this complex and interesting time, we have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Jennifer Kearns. Professor Kearns is a specialist in the history of gender and women in the United States, as well as the history of the American family during the progressive era. She received her PhD from the University of Arizona and is now a professor at Portland State University. Welcome, Professor Kearns, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Professor, let's start with where are you from and how did you become interested in history? Well, I'm actually a native Oregonian. I'm from Eugene, Oregon. I'm a fifth generation Oregonian. My family did the Oregon Trail, um, you know, trek in the 1850s. And um, I went to college at Lewis and Clark College here in Portland and just was, like you, inspired by my history professors. It was just um, uh, an exciting way to think about the world and to place uh, current events in context. And it just was an intellectually inspiring process. So. I just loved learning and then went on to pursue a PhD at the University of Arizona. They had one of the few programs at the time that studied um, women's history, and so that's what drew me there. And I worked with some terrific faculty that were on the edge and on the forefront of, of studying women and gender, not only in the U.S., but the world. There were Africanists, Europeanists, um, folks, uh, women that studied Latin American women's history. Um, I landed with uh, professors who studied women and gender in the U.S., but had a pretty global exposure to women's history. So, yeah, that's what, and then I just kept going. I'm just continuing, you know, <laughs> to learn and um, expand my knowledge base about women and gender because it's just really intriguing and a lifelong process. How is it that you came to be a professor at Portland State University? Well, I have a non-traditional pathway. A lot of faculty um, at the at Portland State, you know, applied for a tenure-line position here, um, but I started as an adjunct uh, before I completed my dissertation, and then I worked here as an adjunct for a few years, then worked full-time at Lewis and Clark College, my alma mater, and then came back, I believe it was, I don't know, 2007, and then a full-time position was offered to me in 2009. So I was working here for about 10 years before I secured this full-time position. <laughs> so how did you become interested in gender and family in United States history? Well, um, my first women's history course was at Lewis and Clark College. This is like 1989 when women's history was sort of like radical, <laughs> you know, and I remember one of my professors at Lewis and Clark College you know, discussing how he was convinced that women's history was a worthwhile uh, discipline. He's like, 
well, women are 50% of the world's population. <laughs> and that's what took him sort of to think about women's history as a, as a, a legitimate discipline. But he was a little bit uh, more conservative, but there was a, a Professor Larry Lippin who actually teaches at Pacific University now. He taught this class, Gender and Sexuality in Victorian uh, America. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And so um, he just opened the door to thinking about history um, through the lens of social history, cultural history, uh, gender, sexuality. Um, and I just thought it was incredibly interesting. So then when I went on to apply to a PhD program, you know, I just wanted to take that investigation further because, as I said, that was just one course as an undergraduate that just sparked my curiosity, and I just wanted to learn more. And so essentially, my PhD program was not necessarily professionally driven. It was just interest driven. I felt like I had just one course. Again, we're talking 1980. What did I say? 1989. Yeah. And, um, you know, I felt not that I had wasted my whole uh, undergraduate career, but I felt like I was cheated, like I just had one course that studied women and gender in the U.S. So I essentially pursued a Ph.D. to expand that knowledge and then along the way realized, oh, this can be my job. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So for those listening that are not historians or are not history savvy, could you give us some background context on the progressive era? Sure. Well, as you mentioned in your um, introduction, in the uh, turn of the 20th century and sort of post-Civil War era, the U.S. was a host to, you know, millions and millions, 15 million, 20 million uh, immigrants, many of whom came here uh, fleeing pogroms, of course, but also economic dislocations in their home country. And they were landing in places like New York and Chicago and crowding cities. Um, I tell my students that, you know, the Lower East Side of New York at the turn of the 20th century was one of the most congested, dense neighborhoods in the world, sort of comparable to Mumbai, India now. Oh. And, you know, people were crowded on top of one another. There was, you know, very little legislation when it came to urban planning public health was a nightmare, uh, you know, dealing with waste. And, you know, it just was, a, you know, New York, Chicago, these were just sites of incredible poverty, congestion, density, noise, filth, horse feces, horse manure, um, and just chaotic. And middle class urban folks who were educated sort of were witnessing what was happening and realizing that this poverty, public health crises, and all the attendant social ills associated with urban poverty, urban, pardon me, urban poverty, was something that was not necessarily um, a moral ill that these people, these immigrants brought upon themselves, but rather, you know, a structural issue that could be fixed with adequate, intelligent processes, right? So we can look at a city and think about ways to uh, deal with uh, public health crises. We can look at the city and, and think about how to deal with horse manure. We can look at these housing uh, tenements and think about housing reform. If we just apply rational social science to um, to these problems. And so thus is the you know progressive era. You have men uh, who have economics degrees, architectural degrees. You have women who have you know, they're the first of their uh, generation, essentially, to graduate from college, and they wanted to, quote, unquote, do something with their lives. They've, they've uh, witnessed this poverty, 
and and they want to do something. And rather than sort of, again, thinking that just transforming people into good Christians, that will cure poverty, they know that there are some um, systematic ways that they can ameliorate the social ills associated with dense urban urbanization, immigration, industrialization. So you talk about this massive influx of immigrants mm-hmm. and people living on top of each other. So what was the family dynamic like during the Progressive Era? Was it something comparable to like the nuclear family or was it mm-hmm. totally different? Well, certainly it's, you know, it's based in a nuclear family, but these are immigrants who are coming from uh, fleeing pogroms in Russia, for example, for example, um, you know, state-sanctioned anti-Semitism, and they are uh, moving here, sometimes vis-a-vis chain migration, right? Someone would come first, send money home to bring the rest of the family over. But they came with literally nothing. So they it's not like a German immigrant who had a little bit of money so they could buy a farm in Minnesota. They come to New York, they land in New York, they go to the Lower East Side, and there they are. And they, you know, with family connections or connections from their fellow villagers, they move into these tenements. And yes, it's father, mother, and children, uh, but oftentimes borders as well. So these tenement apartments were incredibly crowded, sometimes five people sleeping in a room, which would include the kitchen, the living room, and then the one or two bedrooms that these um, apartments had. So you're asking me a little bit more about families. I mean, these are people that have to work together to survive in a cash-based economy. And that means mother is not only homemaker, uh, she also tends to the borders, cooks for them, does their laundry. She also does what we call industrial homework, right? She does finishing work for um, garment manufacturers. She shells peanuts. She makes garter belts you know, things that she gets paid for by the piece so that the industrial capitalist doesn't have to build a factory for her to do this work. He just sends this sort of outwork for her to do at home. And that was a concern, by the way, for middle-class reformers, these people that are participating in the progressive era. They are seeing the home as not a home. It's overcrowded. There are non-family members living there. That creates a lot of vulnerability, by the way, for children. Like, who are these borders? Uh, but also mothers working at home doing this piecework, and she's also getting the assistance of her children. You know, six years old was not too young for a girl or a son to help her mother do industrial homework. And then, I, I forgot your main question, but these are, you know, the urban immigrant family that came to the United States at the turn of the 20th century were incredibly poor, but they also had to work together to survive in this cash-based economy. So mother works in a variety of ways. Uh, daughters that are 15, 16 years old, they're working in garment in the garment uh, industry, working as tailoresses, and you know, fathers working outside the home, but everybody is sort of compelled and needed to bring cash home to survive. So you mentioned um about middle class reformers. Did the middle class exist then as we conceive of it now? Well, there were, you know, because of the market revolution and the change in the economy, there were people, there were families who had benefited from this transition to a market oriented economy lawyers, attorneys, physicians, uh, managers of factories. Right. So the male typically would acquire a profession in this new market based economy that would bring a wage that was sufficient to support a family 
And, you know, ideally, yeah, they would have a single family dwelling. Mother would stay home um, and tend to children. And then the children were released from labor and they would go to school. Uh, even daughters were going to school, but certainly sons were going to school. And so it is comparable to a middle class family now. However, as you might know, to be middle class in the United States now, most families require both the husband and the wife, if we're thinking of a heteronormative family. But two, two adults need to work for wages usually to achieve a middle class status. But So when it comes to the labor, as you said, the children um, were able to stay home. Could you describe why the working conditions for these laborers were so infamous during this time? So could you repeat? So we're talking about um, the immigrant families now or the middle class families? We could talk about just factory workers factory in general. Factory workers, okay. Because yeah. so, I assume the middle class families aren't working in the factories. No, no, no. I mean, they would be the foremen, but the children would not be working, right? So one of the jokes that I tell to my students, I borrow this from a, a historian. These, the children of the middle class were emotionally priceless, but economically worthless, right? They, <laughs> they don't labor. They don't, uh, they go to school. They only take resources from their family, and they are acquiring capital from their parents to sort of replicate, quote-unquote, the middle class. That's Mary Ryan's argument. You know, the, the middle class has to be replicated vis-a-vis -vis their children. So, so they're not laboring. They're going to school. They're acquiring middle class um, capital, skills, behavior, et cetera. But that's not available to our immigrant children. Children cannot be economically worthless and emotionally priceless. They have to bring some sort of cash, however that looks, uh, to their family. So children at home would, you know, support or assist their mothers doing this industrial piecework or, you know, do various sort of tasks, uh, selling newspapers, right? You, we have these Disney shows that glamorize the newsies, right, the kids that go out and sell newspapers. Well, those are children, <laughs> you know, selling newspapers, sometimes late at night. Um, if you're talking about urban areas, boys as young as nine were working, pardon me, if you're talking about sort of more rural areas, uh, boys as young as nine were working in coal mines as quote-unquote breaker boys, right, P peeling off, not peeling off, breaking the stone away from the coal. Um, you know, girls and boys were working in textile mills in North Carolina, Czechoslovakian immigrant families notoriously worked in textile mills. And in places like New York, girls, because of their um, some past history in Russia, were hired to work in these garment factories for wages. So they would, some of them were sweatshops, all of them were unregulated, and they would work uh, 12 hour days, six days a week, uh, sewing in. 1911 specifically, if we can talk in a moment, you know, making shirt waists, right? These are shirts that would, that were very fashionable, that were, women would wear. We kind of talked about immigrant working conditions and specific jobs, but were there certain jobs that were, you know, unofficially like reserved for immigrants or beneath American citizens that the immigrants would take on when they came? I mean... You could say the whole U.S. industrial economy was was, you know, built by immigrant workers. There's a, a famous textbook called "Who Built America." Well, it is, you know, it's a little bit hyperbolic hyperbolic to 
and sort of patriotic to say that immigrants built America, but they did. You know, they Irish came here in the 1840s and dug ditches and built the Erie Canal, and you know, um, so immigrants. Whether you're talking about the mid 19th century, at the when the market revolution was burgeoning towards the turn of the 20th century, as industrialization was uh, was growing even more. This is work done by immigrants. I mean, the immigrant population was, I mean, I don't have my notes on me, but, you know, a majority of cities, the the dominant population were either immigrants or their children. And, yeah, they were doing low-paid, unregulated, unrepresented labor that was, you know, dirty, dangerous, and, you know, not well-paid. So what kinds of health effects did these conditions have? I mean, it can't be healthy to work in an unregulated right. factory or mine. Right. Right. Well, I mean, let's go back to the housing conditions. These tenements were unregulated in terms of air quality, uh, air ventilation, and a lot of public health crises were happening just in the, in the tenements themselves. Cholera epidemics, for example would sweep through a tenement because of lack of waste removal, ventilation. Um, so the housing itself facilitated a lot of uh, diseases and epidemics and crises. The factories, of course, I mean, they were dangerous in and of themselves, as we'll, we're going to talk about in a minute. But but just imagine, you know, a, a garment factory, It it facilitates a lot of dust because of the fabric so there's a lot of fabric in the air that that young women are breathing so there's a lot of lung or disorders certainly working 12 hours a day is going to be uh, onerous on your body these are people that don't have adequate nutrition health care and the sort of factory environment itself is you know again dangerous and and this disruptive and onerous to their bodies but there are other Factories, of course, um, coal and coal mines. I mean, you're breathing in 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 coal dust, and the life expectancy. Again, I don't have my notes in front of me, but the life expectancy of an immigrant person was very low because of just lung health. In addition to the lack of adequate nutrition poor air quality, exposure to waste, literally to feces, right? Um, this, you know, the, the health outcomes for, for someone who, were, who could survive the age of one was poor. I mean, children in these urban areas were dying before the age of one simply because of lack of access to clean water. I mean, children were dying uh, under the age of one from diarrhea, so, obviously, people aren't going to put up with these conditions for mm -hmm. long, and they didn't. So, how did the average urban factory worker rise up and fight for their mm -hmm. rights? Right. Annalise Orlick talks about these Jewish and Italian workers at garment factories who, interestingly, despite having worked 12-hour days, six days a week, were going after work to these reading rooms, these socialist reading rooms that were housed in different parts of the city. And they 
were exposed to this sort of uh, labor theory of value and socialist analysis of the workplace and were um, educating themselves on socialist theory and, and ideas about labor rights and so forth. And so, you know, their experience at these reading rooms, as well as, as Orlick talks about this shop floor culture, these girls were working together. They were, you know, not living together, but working 12 hours a day, six days a week. And, and as we do, we talk to one another and we complain about our working conditions. And then we go to these reading rooms and learn about things that you can do. And so in 1909, and this is a very specific case, but there are other cases as well in other parts of the country where, you know, people had had it. And they, um, in 1909, there was this quote-unquote great uprising where these girls struck for better wages and improved working conditions and working for fewer hours. And they were supported by the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Uh, there was also a middle-class white women's sort of support uh, organization, the Women's Trade Union League, and they they took to the streets in New York during the winter and struck to um, their peril. They were the police would attack them. They were experiencing a lot of physical abuse. Obviously, they're also not earning wages, so their families are suffering. These girls made a significant percentage of their families total income. And by the early, in early uh, 2010, the garment workers, or pardon me, the garment industries uh, negotiated a settlement and the girls went back to work uh, with some uh, wage and hour concessions. However, um, notoriously, the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory did not agree to, quote unquote, negotiate with the union. And so the union, in terms of uh, the ILGWU, um, ILGWU did not have any sort of power to represent the girls collectively. And one of the issues that those girls wanted was to address factory safety, and they did not get to address that. So um, a year later, if you don't mind me just sort of continuing on with the story, a year later, the garment factory experienced a fatal fire and 146 of the garment factory workers, most of them girls, 15, 16, 17, many of whom had struck just the year prior for better wages, reduced hours, and safer working conditions, um, perished. There was, you know, many of your listeners probably already know this, but the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory had only one exit for the girls because the uh, paternalistic factory owners thought that the girls would steal, you know, garments or steal tools or what have you. And so the girls had to have their purses inspected and they would only, apparently could only afford one inspector. So they only had one door for the girls to uh, pass through to exit upon completion of their shift. So there was only one door open which was certainly insufficient for all these girls to leave, to get out of the fire, um, or to flee the fire, pardon me. They were, uh, there was one elevator, uh, and several girls got on that elevator, but after one run, it was over. Uh, the, the quote-unquote, um, what are those called? Sorry, I'm having a blank. Fire escape ladders 
crumbled, couldn't you know support all the girls trying to flee. And so essentially fleeing this fire that caught on quickly because of all the fabric and all the the dust, you know, the fabric dust in the air, um, the girls leapt to their death, you know, outside of the out of out of the windows. And there was not enough, um, you know, the sort of safety measures were buckets of water sort of scattered around the factory. You know, obviously this is not going to take care of a yeah. swiftly moving fire. And the fire department that did respond didn't have sufficient ladders to reach the girls. So essentially this was just a, a situation where there was no um, way to mitigate the disaster. There was no sort of infrastructure to deal with the fire adequately, right? Um, there were no safety mechanisms for the girls um, in case of a fire. Um, so. so what kind of regulations came into effect because of events like this Right. And because of the social movements that were taking place. Right. So Fran Francis Perkins was um, employed by the state of New York and witnessed this fire. And she, working with Samuel Gompers of the AFL, as well as the, um, uh, the town hall, you know, began conducting, or New York City began conducting hearings on how to better regulate uh, industry. And it certainly takes a long time. Uh, but slowly, New York City um, and other states begin to sort of regulate the workplace in terms of hours, doors, exits, you know, simple things like that. You know, I'll point to my students. I mean, you can look in this room. We've got a sprinkler here. Uh, the doors go out rather than pull in. You know, there have to be adequate exits per sort of expected population that resides in a or works in a particular factory. So these are things that just sort of slowly... Uh, begin uh, to take place in large part due to this fire. You know, as Samuel Gomper said, you know, girls had to burn for, for the state to begin to do anything to regulate the, the workplace. It was, a, you know, it was laissez-faire capitalism. They thought that, um, that the owners of the factories could do as they will. And the, the courts held this concept of liberty to contract. You know, if you want to work here, that is your liberty and you essentially accept the workplace conditions as they are. And the state now uh, shifts and the courts be slowly begin to shift in legitimizing the right of the state to regulate for um, the citizens' interests. So you mentioned earlier about these different women's unions. Were unions around before um, all of the turmoil or did they come about as sort of a product of people fighting for better working conditions? Well, as soon as the market revolution, you know, was taking place here in the United States, you get these sort of trade unions, general workers unions um, that are trying to represent their interests. And interestingly, sort of speaking of girls, I mean, one of the famous uh, labor organizations began in 1836 in Lowell, Massachusetts, native-born white women who who um, moved to Lowell, Massachusetts to work in the textile mills there. They had um, lost their economic worth in their families because they, you know, as a teenage girl in the 18th century, they would have perhaps woven and sort of assisted their family in those kind of um, home production activities. But anyway, that's a long story, but, but 
as as mechanized weaving took over or mechanized cloth production took over with these uh, looms at textile factories in Lowell, Massachusetts, um, girls were not weaving at home anymore, so they moved to Lowell, Massachusetts and 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 worked there in similarly onerous, mind numbing, as they would say, labor, very quick pace. They experienced some wage reductions and quote unquote speed ups. And in 1836, they uh, walked out. But it was essentially a, a labor organization, and and they ended up uh, testifying before the Massachusetts legislature, I believe, in 1851, and talked about how, you know, they barely had time to eat, let alone read or pray or go to church. You know, they could go to church, but they had no, you know, very few opportunities for reflection, uh, as they would say. And so anyway, your question is, you know, what's the history of the labor movement? It's, a, it's long and, and complicated, but I do want to point out that one of the early iterations of, of the labor movement were like, they, like in 1909, in 1836, 1838, 1851, these uh, girls who were working in factories and they thought that their treatment was unfair. And they wanted to change it. And they testified before the state legislature, unsuccessfully for the most part. So, as you said, the labor movement is long, arduous, and multifaceted. Mm -hmm. um, and there were a lot of events that sort of propelled it. And one of these, more tragically, was the fire that you talked about. Mm -hmm. But were there any other big events similar to the fire of the garment factory that almost forced the government's hand and made them step in and regulate some of these businesses? Or was that just the main That was, the, I mean, 1911 is this, this big moment. And we get, uh, I think what's important to this narrative is that Frances Perkins is, is present and, and is a witness. And, you know, she is appointed to Franklin Roosevelt's uh, cabinet as labor secretary in 1933. And that's when the t tide turns in terms of the federal government. In 1908, the US Supreme Court upheld the right of states to regulate hours worked by women and women only. And that Supreme Court case, Mueller versus Oregon, 1908, stemmed from a response by a business owner here in Oregon who found that his rights were being violated when the state of Oregon passed legislation detailing that women, and again, women only, could work uh, a maximum of 10 hours a day. And Oregon was able to pass that legislation and apply it to women and women only because they, they argued that women's bodies needed protection from working 12 hours a day, six days a week, because, you know, as we discussed, it is... Um, a public health crisis to to have to work such long hours and have such arduous conditions, and uh, the middle class American observer were they were concerned that women who worked in these kinds of conditions would have feeble children, right? And and in fact they were right. These children, uh, you know, uh, maternal and infant health among the urban immigrant classes was horrific. It was incredibly poor. And like I mentioned, the mortality rates as a whole for the U.S. were, um, you know, 10% of American children under the age of one were dying. Now, if you sort of were to look just at, 
you know, impoverished children or children in urban areas, the, the rates were much higher. And so the states wanted to intervene and protect women's bodies because of their maternal role or their sort of role as bearing children. And so Oregon passed this law, and a launderer here in Oregon uh, challenged that law, saying that it violated this quote-unquote liberty to contract sort of idea that we have in, in court case prior to this point. So the court, or pardon me, the case finds its way um, to the Supreme Court, and that, and that law is defended by none other than uh, Louis Brandeis with the assistance of a, his uh, sister-in-law, pardon me, Josephine Goldmark, who, was, who wrote the defense, the infamous Brandeis brief, to sort of defend this, this legislation. And Josephine Goldmark and Louis Brandeis and others argued that, um, again, like I just said, the, that these kind of workplace conditions enfeeble American women's bodies uh, and they are having, you know, children, infants that have health crises. And so it is in the state's interest to protect women's bodies because of their maternal functions. And so that law, um, the law protecting women's um, hours or maximizing women's hours here in Oregon was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1908. And, um, and then other states across the country then passed similar, quote unquote, protective legislation, but only for women because it's assumed, right, that men are actors and the sort of liberty to contract applies to men. Okay, so that's 1908. We had the fire in 1911. And then I know it's quite a leap, um, but we get to, you know, Francis Perkins and the New Deal and the Roosevelt administration. And so it's really not until the 1930s when the, this kind of idea of protecting um, all workers comes into to federal law, but it begins with women in, in the early 1900s. So, yeah, along that line, you mentioned the state legislative changes in places like Oregon, Massachusetts, and New York. Um, but could you talk a little bit more about when the national government stepped in to sort of standardize regulations mm -hmm. for the country? Right. So um, by having... Francis Perkins as the labor secretary who witnessed the fire, um, as well as, you know, Franklin Roosevelt notoriously was surrounded by his quote-unquote brain trust, right? Some, are, some <laughs> of your listeners might be familiar with, with them. And, and essentially, and we've, we've skipped over a little bit of the conversation, but, you know, that's a, a meaty conversation. Um, but these brain trusters had been engaged in progressive era reform. You know, at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about how there were these quote-unquote middle-class reformers who were viewing the city and all of its social ills as a problem that could be fixed. And all you, just, all you need is to apply uh, rational social scientific principles to these problems, and we can ameliorate all of these negative effects associated with urbanization, immigration, and industrialization. So those very people that were involved in the progressive era 
um, activism were, again, these university-educated, middle-class um, individuals who find their way into Roosevelt's administration, whether as a member of the cabinet, like Labor Secretary Francis Perkins, um, or as one of his advisors. Um, certainly, Franklin Roosevelt's wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, she was one of those progressive era activists as well. She had volunteered at settlement houses in New York, um, trying to ameliorate ameliorate poverty or mitigate poverty uh, for New York's um, immigrant population. So they find their way uh, into the federal administration, essentially, advise President Roosevelt on policies that he should take. And two um, major policies, of course, uh, are is uh, the National Labor Relations Act that gives the right to laborers to organize. And if a majority of a workplace population votes to be represented by a union, that employer is required to bargain collectively with that union. Instead of um, negotiating as individuals, they are required to negotiate with a union. And in that sort of collective, pardon me, that collective body would then negotiate for uh, wages, workplace conditions, and hours. So the National Labor Relations Act is sort of the labor's Magna Carta. Magna Carta, pardon me. <laughs> and um, Frances Perkins, you know, a female, was able to, uh, of course, along with uh, Senator Robert Wagner, who was you know, let's go back to 1911, you know, Robert Wagner is a New York senator and sees his constituents, I mean, women aren't voting for him, but he sees his population perishing and struggling in the workplace. And, he, you know, he was an advocate for a minimum wage, maximum hours. Uh, Wagner also, by the way, was an advocate for unemployment insurance. And he's critical, if you don't mind me just mentioning other legislation, the Social Security Act, uh, one of which, uh, a provision of which is unemployment insurance, right? If you lose your job, it doesn't mean you have to become an indigent pauper. You know, you have this insurance that prevents your family from um, financial peril. So Social Security Act, the National Labor Relations Act, and then um, something that isn't talked about as much, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which provides for um, maximum hours and minimum wage. Now, I want to just make clear that a lot of that legislation does not apply to jobs held by uh, African Americans, Mexican Americans, right? People who work in fields as sharecroppers, right? Or um, working in the commercial agriculture industry out here in California and in Oregon. Um, Texas, right? Mexican Americans aren't covered by this labor legislation. Uh, waitresses, um, service workers aren't uh, uh, covered by this legislation, but factory workers are. So I think something um, that I'm going to say that I think you would agree with is that one of the most important parts about history is looking at how it affects, how past events and past people affect us on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And you have talked about how even the layout of Portland itself mm -hmm. was um, 
part of the regulation introduced mm -hmm. in the progressive era. So mm -hmm. if you could just elaborate on that a little bit. Right. So Oregon has the benefit of developing as a city, you know, as the progressive era is taking hold. And one of the problems that our middle class reformers saw with places like New York City was the filth, right? It's filthy. It was filthy, it, you know. And so as Portland was developing, they wanted to avoid the kind of uh, filth and degeneracy and not, degeneracy is not the right word. Um, Portland planners wanted the city to not look like New York City, not look like the Lower East Side. And so when um, the city council was uh, sort of evolving, um, you know, even before, you know, 1905, they were making decisions to bring in um, landscape architects to sort of create a park plan. And they hired the firm of um, the Olmsted brothers, and they were associated with uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed Central Park, right, in the People's Park in, in the 19th century. And so the Olmsted architect firm made a recommendation that Portland essentially have this uh, park system where parks are located in various communities and they would be places for people to recreate, um, to, to have healthy leisure, and to be surrounded by trees and air and not be you know, in the kind of tenement uh, overcrowded regions of, of New York, which as we detailed before created public health crises. These people literally had no fresh air. And, and a park's not going to ameliorate poverty, but it's going to essentially, I mean, be a bulwark against congestion and, and filth and, you know, ill health. Is this when the urban growth boundary uh, came into play? No, and I don't. I can't give you that exact date. That's later um, in in the state's history. Um, but Oregon has a history of, and Portland has a history of, of sort of urban planning and thinking. And there are other historians here on campus. The whole urban planning, uh, College of Urban Planning, is essentially here on in Portland State's campus was founded you know, in homage, as it were, to the history of Portland and its city planning decisions and trying to plan a city that's livable, that's not congested, pardon me, that's not congested, that doesn't promote public health crises, right? They're trying to learn their lessons from um, New York City. And a lot of people that um, advise the city council to make their decisions you know, learned a lot of lessons um, from places like New York and Chicago that, that didn't have adequate planning. What advice would you have for anyone interested in gender history or even just history in general? What advice would I have for them? <laughs> <laughs> or like even people who are like freshmen, sophomores, mm -hmm. who are just starting their journey. Mm -hmm. Well, I always just sometimes beg my students to, to, but I don't think you could compel it, but just be, have interest, have, um, and be excited to learn. I mean, especially here at Portland State, you know, students, you have an opportunity to learn. You have an opportunity to go to a class 
listen to a professor who's thought about these things for a long time and we hope is, is prepared to present this material to you and, and be in dialogue with you about really fascinating and interesting topics. And if you open your minds and your spirit, not to be hokey pokey, or ho uh, can you eliminate that word? Yeah. <laughs> eliminate that. Um, if, you, if a student can open their mind and heart, I believe, to learning and to not be sort of muted by skepticism or... I don't know what it what is it sometimes I just see students who aren't interested and and I, I just want them to open themselves up <laughs> what I what I found about you know like true um, history majors people who go all the way is that they just have this general curiosity yes, about yeah. the world mm -hmm. they just yeah. want to know more Correct. yeah I know that I always just want to know more yeah like, how did yeah. that happen so speaking of um, curiosity <laughs> if you could travel back in time mm. when and where would you go and who would you talk to mm. we ask every single professor oh, did this you, question, did you, and it's our favorite. Did you give me a warning about this? I think I did. You probably did. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I mean, there's so many times in history. Let me think for a minute, okay? Okay, okay I'm just going to do an easy one. I would love to talk to black women activists at the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, and and talk to them about their lives, um, their plans for their community, you know, what they envisioned for their grandchildren. You know, the Jim Crow South and the Jim Crow North were incredibly violent, incredibly um, humiliating. Um, women like Ida B. Wells, they just experienced such humiliation on a daily basis, right? Ida B. Wells, famously in 1876, I believe, was kicked off of a lady's car and even though she had purchased a ticket to ride in the lady's car and and uh, women like Ida B. Wells were relegated to, to riding in in the smoking cars and 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 they would have to be around men who were smoking and spitting tobacco and cursing and maybe drinking alcohol and these are black women who wanted to have a level of dignity, and they were being relegated to these smoking cars. And so, anyway, I'm sort of going on and on here, but no, it's okay. But um, you know, these women wanted lives that were better for their children and for their grandchildren. They wanted their children to go to school. They wanted their children uh, to have professional and cultural and emotional opportunities that they did not have. And so. I'd just be, you know, I don't know, quite honestly, if I could have as uh, frank a conversation with these women as I would like because I am a white woman and, and they probably would be suspicious of me. Um, but if somehow I could have a conversation with them to, you know, think about the dreams that they had for their grandchildren in particular, that would be, that would be really terrific. Well... Thank you for coming mm -hmm. on the show. It was You're a pleasure welcome. to be able to interview you. That was yes, great. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Beyond Footnotes is produced by students of the PSU Department of History and is recorded in the studio of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always interested to know what you guys think about the show. 
if there are ever any questions or anything, any topics you would like us to address or professors perhaps that you are interested in hearing from, you can always shoot us an email again at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com. And I think we still need one more yes on the quiz show, right? We do, yes. So if you are an undergraduate history major, we are doing a quiz show with trivia on general historical facts and professor trivia, which is going to be very fun. So if any of you are interested, please contact us. And I'm working on getting a prize for the winner. So if that's an incentive for you. Oh, yeah, we'll make sure there are prizes. Most likely going to be candy. (laughs) All right, guys. 